Good morning. Welcome again to In Town Presbyterian Church. It's great to have you in worship with us this morning. Hope you're having a wonderful summer. Uh, thank you to Lindsay for filling in for a few weeks for Matt as he is taking sort of a mini sabbatical. So she'll be leading our time of worship, our music for the next uh, this week and the next two weeks. So we appreciate her uh, very much. We are going through this summer a series on the Ten Commandments that we are entitling this series, The Liberty of Obedience, the freedom that comes from obeying an authority outside you, obeying specifically the God of the Bible. We looked last week at the liberty of obeying God himself, of coming into a a covenant, loving relationship with the God of the Bible. Now this morning, we're looking at the second commandment, that is the liberty of worship. Let me read it for us, and then we'll pray. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would dig down deep into our souls, into all of the ways that we would resist this passage, to all of the ways that we would carve out idols, that we would create things that take the place of you, that we see as better. Help us to see how exhausting that is. Help us to turn over our will to yours. Let us be submissive and see that what you're calling us to is a life of beauty, a life of wholeness, a life of fulfillment and rest. Father, we are here from many different places, some visiting from out of town, some here that are, have been invited, some here uh, very reluctantly. We pray that you would uh, give us a comfortable space to sit and to think and to investigate the claims of Jesus and Father, for those of us who have been Christians for many years, that this commandment may be quite familiar, it may be quite rote, we pray that you would let us see it afresh, that you would speak truth, that you would speak grace, that you would speak the gospel into our hearts again. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. We are looking at a commandment that, whose violation is somewhat difficult to see, because in idolatry, there is an element of truth. There's a motivation to honor something that we see as virtuous. And it can be religious in nature. It can be unreligious or non-religious in nature. This was made very clear to me a number of years ago when Katie and I still lived in Alabama, and there was a controversy, a legal controversy, about the placing of the Ten Commandments in public spaces, specifically the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court Chief Justice uh, brought in a monument of the Ten Commandments, and it weighed about 5,000 pounds. It was inscribed in marble, and someone paid for it, and he brought it into the rotunda of the Supreme Court building. And there was a great controversy, because here he is, the Chief Justice. He ought to be able to control what goes on in his courtroom. But on the other hand, what place and what role should religion, should a specific religion, have in the public life of law. And so I remember this, there was a lot of legal wranglings, a lot of court cases, a lot of um, 
going back and appealing decisions, but finally he was, uh, it was, uh, he was asked to take it out of the courthouse. And so they brought in a big fort- forklift to bring this marble monument out of, the, um, out of the courthouse. And I remember distinctly they had news reports on it, and these two guys come in, and they've got a forklift, and, you know, they're probably just minimum wage people. I don't know how invested they are in this controversy, but they're just getting this monument out. And the protesters outside are screaming. And I remember one particular, they put the camera on this person, and he screamed, get your hands off our God. And to me, I thought, okay, there's a, there's a breakdown here. There's a conflation here that maybe is obvious to me, but not to someone else. And I don't impugn this guy's motives. He's being a little rude about it. But certainly what he's trying to do is honor the law of God, that he wants God to be respected and honored in the public square. But isn't he implying that by touching this monument, touching this piece of stone, that you are somehow touching God himself? Uh, Stephen Colbert, around this time, he was still on The Daily Show at this point, but he had a congressman on his show who was a big proponent of bringing the Ten Commandments back into public places. And so he gave kind of his explanation of why this would be good for America and why we should all honor and respect Judeo-Christian ethics and so forth, specifically the Ten Commandments. And so Stephen Colbert, of course, catches him here because he holds up his fist and says, okay, I want you to name for me the Ten Commandments. You know, list them off. And he starts listing them, and he gets to four. And that was the only, only four that the congressman could come up with, though he was, his, one of his main platforms was promoting the Ten Commandments in, public square, in the public square. It seems that the Ten Commandments in both of these situations have some kind of mystical power that is somehow detached from the personal God himself, that, that's become an amulet, it's become a totem of some sort. And this is exactly what happened frequently in, the, in ancient Israel, in their history. And there's one account in 1 Samuel 5 where Israel goes into battle and they are not in a vibrant relationship with God. They have been unfaithful, but they think if they take the Ark of the Covenant, which takes the Ten Commandments into battle, that they'll win. That they don't have to have a personal relationship with God. They just have to have this symbol. They have to have this image, this icon, this totem. And what happens is they're routed by the Philistines, and they can't understand why. And the Philistines take the Ark of the Covenant, take the Ten Commandments out of Israel into their homeland. Now, this is a religious example of what we could see as perhaps breaking the Second Commandment. But there's lots of ways, lots of non-religious things in our lives that may be good in and of themselves, but become ways that we prove ourselves in the world, ways that we mark out our self-worth, ways that we build our identity and build our personality. And it could be things like exercise, something that's very good but becomes something that, that commands us, something that controls us, something that we bow and submit our will to because we have to do this. We have to look this way, and so we have to go to the gym. It becomes the center of our life. It could be other good things, hard work, good grades, being well-liked, having a good reputation. All of these things are good in and of themselves, but when they come, become the center of our life, when they begin to replace God and his love, his affection, what he says about you, that's what the second commandment is talking about. 
we begin to serve and obey these things rather than use these things to serve and obey God. And whatever they demand, we will surrender. And they become, as such, functional gods in our lives. Now, that's a rather long introduction to three points that will be shorter than the introduction. But the first point is, what is it? What does the second commandment say? And I've already begun to allude to what, it, what its meaning is. Then secondly, how do we violate it? How do we break the second commandment? And then thirdly, how do we obey it? So first of all, what is it? What's well, given to support the first commandment to the believing community that God has named as being his people, that they have agreed to follow no other God, that God, Yahweh, the God of the Bible, is their God. And so this second commandment begins to order that relationship, begins to order worship for all of those who have agreed, who have said, yes, I want my life to have meaning in God. I identify myself with Yahweh. This second commandment begins to tell them what that relationship should look like. Now, the Roman Catholic and Lutheran traditions actually combine the first and second commandments as if to say these are one and the same. And when you read commentaries, when you look at it, it is kind of difficult to see a distinction between the first and second. In most Protestant uh, traditions, the, the first and second are split, and the tenth is made into one. But the first is what we would see as the call into relationship. The first commandment is the call into relationship with God. And then the second is the ordering of that relationship. It is a call, the first, into an exclusive, loyal, love relationship with God. And then the second is how that is expressed, how that is lived out. Now, idolatry, this big, sneaky, slippery word, what does it mean? What we're talking about is any time we reduce God to a thing or an image, or we elevate a thing or an image to the place of God. One of the best examples in the Bible is one that you may be familiar with, is the, the example of, the, of Aaron's golden calf in Exodus, 22, in Exodus 32. Excuse me. Moses is up on the mountain, and he's speaking with God. He's gone to get the law of God to bring it down from Mount Sinai to give to the people. But the people are getting restless, and they're wondering, what has happened to Moses? One of, this, one of the translations actually says, as for this fellow Moses, where is he? They've lost confidence that he's going to come down, that he's not going to come down with some fiery torch and kill them. They don't know what's going on on the mountain. And so they ask Aaron to make them an image, make them something to worship, some symbol that they can associate with God that will seem less scary than all of this stuff that's happening on the mountain, this thunder and this lightning and all of this violence that is happening on the mountain. They want a symbol. They want something that would kind of make it a little bit more manageable. And so Aaron says, well, give me all of your gold. Take out your earrings, all of your, the gold that's in your household. I will burn it. I will put it together, and I will make a golden calf for you to worship. And once he does that, he says, this is your God who brought you out of Egypt. Now, what's interesting here is he's not violating the first commandment. He's saying, we are, we are exclusive worshipers of Yahweh. He's the one that brought us out of Egypt, but we need something more manageable, something that we can see and touch and put our hands around so that we can know, we can imagine God in a specific way. We can put a face on, a God, on God. And they actually choose an image that's very honoring. 
In the ancient world, the bull is the source of vitality. It's a source of fertility. It's a source of power. And they're willing to sacrifice some of the costly possessions that are in their home. So they're trying to honor God, but doing so in a way that breaks the second commandment. And God says that God hated their worship. Now, why is that? The answer is that he says, because I am a jealous God. Now, we have a different idea of what jealousy is, sort of a negative connotation of this word in our culture, because we think of love triangles in People magazine or on reality shows where people are jealous of someone else's affection. And it's a negative connotation. But what God is saying is, I love you. Out of all the nations, I have set my affection on you. You are my beloved, and I am jealous for your love in return. As we said last week, that we would think it's strange if a spouse did not require an exclusive love relationship with their husband or wife. So breaking the second commandment would be analogous to entering into marriage while you're still imagining your wife to be or your spouse to be someone different than they really are. Pretending or imagining them to be a composite of all the most positive features that you can imagine, of all of those you've been attracted to in the past. If you enter into a relationship like that, that is unfaithful. It's not being faithful to the love relationship, and that's what God is saying. I am jealous for your love. I want you to love me only. These images distort the true person. Now, before we move on, we need to look at this strange ominous supporting clause that he gives. Why worship me alone? Why don't bow down before idols? He says, because I punish the children for the iniquity of their parents to the third and fourth generation. Now, if you're a Christian, you're thinking, yikes, if I step out of line, if I blow it, if I sin, then God kind of has his finger on the button and he's waiting to press it and just destroy me and destroy my children. Not only my children, my children's children and so forth. And if you're here and you're investigating Christianity, then why would you be attracted to follow a God like that? Certainly, we don't want God keeping kind of this heavenly ledger book that when we get out of line, that the hammer of justice is going to fall on us and fall on our children. But that's not what this clause is saying. It's not a hammer of justice waiting to fall, but it's a principle that's built into human life dealing with the consequences of sin. And in the ancient world, it was very common to have a number of families living together, and not only a number of families, but a number of generations, sometimes three or four generations, would live under one household. And generally speaking, one's children follows the faith and the practice of the parents. And so when you have parents that are modeling and following something, then the children within that household most likely are going to go in that direction. So you see the sin, the consequences that drift down into the third and the fourth generation. But also notice the disproportionality of of justice and grace. He says, I punish the children for the iniquity of their parents to the third and fourth generation, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commands. This is the nature of God, that mercy trumps justice. The Ten Commandments are a carrot, not a stick. The ethos of the Ten Commandments is, I brought you out of Egypt. I have initiated salvation with you. I love you before you love me in return. 
That's the setting. That's the foundational piece of the Ten Commandments. He's not capriciously bordering our behavior, but he is pointing the way to experience that love, that God is showing love to a thousand generations. Here's how you experience that love. Now, how do we violate it? How do we break the second commandment more specifically? It says we're not to make an idol of anything, an image of anything under heaven or under, on, on the earth or under the earth. In ancient cosmology, what this means is anywhere. In anywhere in the universe, you are not to make a representation or an image in order to bow down and worship it. Now, there's been a number of interpretations of this. One is taken in more communal movements, communal situations, such as the Hutterite movement, where they say, well, that would outlaw any image whatsoever. So they have no movies, no art, no pictures, no physical representation of anything, not just of God, but of persons or of buildings or of things or of fish or anything. And so they, in Canada, actually went to court to win the right to have a driver's license without their picture on it because they thought that was breaking the second commandment. And they actually had a window of time where that was allowed. It's no longer. But that's one option. More close to our tradition, to the Presbyterian kind of reform tradition, it's been held that it's not anything. It's more related to images of God. And so you see um, even children's literature that don't have pictures of Jesus in it because that would be breaking the second commandment. But what the second commandment is outlawing is not primarily the type of image, but the function of the image. If it's the type, then the Hutterites would be correct, that any image anywhere would be outlawed, not just of God. But any image, imagination, any icon, any representation which takes the place of God, which misrepresents him, any thought that misrepresents him can be breaking the second commandment. Now, let me give you just five very specific concepts, very specific images. And there's, this is not exhaustive. Uh, I thought of three or four others, but I couldn't come up with a good name, and so I left them out. But the first one would be how we take one theme, uh, one attribute of God, but we totalize his character through that one attribute. We can only see him functioning through that one attribute. And so we universalize it and think that he's just one-dimensional. And so this is not derogatory towards grandmothers, but my grandmother was very indulgent towards me, and there was no, no rules, no discipline. There was only love. There were no boundaries. It was great. I loved going over there because she let me do whatever I wanted to do, and there was no recourse. There, she wouldn't tell my parents, and so even if I misbehaved, I hit my brother, she would keep it quiet. And so for me, this kind of image I thought of as God as grandmother, that we're drawn perhaps to the forgiveness, to the tender love, to the kindness of God, but we are kind of standoffish about his moral absolutism towards his anger for sin, that he would actually punish someone for sin. We like one attribute, but not the other. We see God as kind of a a grandmother in the sky. Or maybe we see God as sort of a a lucky charm. We imagine God being on our side, that he's our bodyguard, he's our amulet, he keeps us protected. And so personally, we get angry at God when things don't go our way, when some type of pain comes in our life. We think, God, how could you let this happen 
to me. You're supposed to be my bodyguard, my protector, my amulet. Or interpersonally, we would always think of God as being an advocate for whatever our position is. He never contradicts us, and whenever we enter into an argument, we're able to quickly marshal verses that back up our position. Interpersonally, he's our lucky charm. Or morally, that we find God hating the very same things that we do, disliking the very same people that we dislike. He never contradicts us. We're very absolute towards other people's sin, but very ambivalent, ambiguous towards our sin. God sort of serves as our lucky charm or our rabbit's foot in our pocket. Or maybe we imagine a God who exists to make our lives better, that God has a premier interest in my personal happiness and fulfillment. And I am happy with God insofar as he is providing for my personal welfare. This is the God who rescues Israel out of Egypt, but not the God of the Ten Commandments. It's the God of salvation, but not of obedience or lordship. This is sort of God as a genie, that he conjures up whatever we can imagine for our personal fulfillment, and then we grow dissatisfied when that thing is not put in our grasp. Flannery O'Connor says, what people don't realize is how much religion costs They think faith is a big electric blanket when really it's the cross. God is not a genie, and when we begin to imagine him in that way, we can become perilously close to breaking the second commandment. Or perhaps we think God is kept happy by our spiritual devotions and our disciplines, that we look at the commands and the imperatives that are in Scripture that are certainly good in and of themselves, but we use them as an instrument of manipulation. We use them to keep God at bay, or we use use them to bring him into our lives to give us what we want by obeying. But we see God as sort of a taskmaster. If we perform well, then God will be happy, and it will go well for us. We try real hard. We jump through the hoops but we're never at rest. And this is the Ten Commandments without the rescue, Ten Commandments without the preamble of grace. And these people are usually very judgmental towards other people, but we should be compassionate on judgmental people because normally they're very hard on themselves. We see God as a taskmaster. Or maybe number five, God as sort of a Frankenstein monster, that he is a composite of all of the palatable, friendly, non-threatening gods of all of the pantheon of world religions and modern religious ideas, that we kind of pick and choose. We like this feature of this God, this feature of this system, this feature, and we build a Frankenstein monster because we believe that exclusivistic ideas of God are outmoded and old-fashioned. But what we're doing is we're giving superiority to our own cultural moment, to our own ideas, to our own individual or our own community without looking beyond that. We're letting our individual intellect rise above the authority of Scripture, and we're submitting God to what we say he can be. Now, sadly, this all says more about us than it does about God because we're worshiping God who is a projection of the self. André Chorquy, who is a French commentator, said, the prohibition of idolatry intends to banish all temptation to enclose the supreme being in one's egocentrism. 
representing it by an image or statue with which one identifies. The worship given to the idol becomes worship given to oneself. At the bottom of all of these things, at the bottom of idolatry, at the bottom of the breaking of the second commandment is is self-worship. It's egocentrism, where we say, I am the final arbiter of who God is and what he can say and do in my life. And this imagining can be very consistent. We can have one of those themes. We can see God as grandmother or one of the others for a long time, or it can be very shape-shifting, given our present-day psychology, that we change daily, maybe hourly. We're very image-conscious people, and we're skilled at crafting images for ourselves by which we reveal only parts of ourselves to people, the most positive parts, the things that we want individuals to see that we think they will honor. I've wanted to do a sermon series here on the bumper stickers of Portland and what it tells us about the driver, what it tells us about ourselves when we put bumper stickers that we see bumper stickers that convey that the driver is open-minded, that they eat locally, that they live simply, which are all great things. But when we define ourselves by being open-minded, by eating locally, when we use our choices or our causes that are good things to define ourselves, to make a name for ourselves, to create our personality and our identity, they become issues of pride. They become issues that become idols in our lives. Not only do I support that, but I want you to love me because I support it. Not only do I believe in eating locally, I want you to think better of me because I do. And it's no great leap from inventing ourselves so that other people will like and respect and understand us to inventing a God that we like and respect and understand. And all of this is unfair and demeaning to God. It's like choosing to relate to photos or videos of our children rather than relating to them as they are, as they really are, because it's much easier. It's less messy. They don't disobey when they're on the video, at least not normally. I've captured a few events on video. But it's like choosing to relate to pictures of our children or pictures of our wife or spouse rather than the real person. We love watching videos of them, but find it daunting to care for them, to deal with the real person, to deal with the, the disobedience. And when we do this with God, we shelve the real one, and we play pretend with a very dead, very partial, very controllable little representation. It's unfair to God, but it also, friends, crushes and dehumanizes us. It's like squeezing blood from a turnip. God has filled our world with good, beautiful, lovely things that when used according to their purpose can bring delight. But when sex or food or drink or rest or money become idols, ways we try and control our world, they will end up controlling us and they will lead us away from God. John Calvin talked about this idea that we are built to worship and he says that the human heart is an idol factory, that we are walking around looking for something to worship. And it's exactly what Dostoevsky says in the reflection quotes, that he's, so long as man remains free, he strives for nothing so incessantly and so painfully as to find someone to worship. 
We are made to worship, but fractured and empty and twisted when we worship other things before God instead of God. The Ten Commandments, then, are not simply, not primarily about duty, but about deliverance. Deliverance and rescue from the lie of self-worship and the enslavement of being your own God. So that's the danger. That's the difficulty. That's how we break it. Finally and quickly, how do we obey it? How do we begin to follow it? How do we begin to say no to these other idols that look beautiful on the outside, that look so tempting and look like pleasure and fulfillment can be so quickly had if we will just turn to that? Following God seems so esoteric, and it seems so up in the air. It seems so hard to grasp. How do we begin to obey? If I had been smarter, I would have put this verse as your New Testament reading in the liturgy. Colossians 1, 15 through 20. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, making peace through his blood shed on the cross. It is as if Paul has Deuteronomy 5 in front of him as he is making this writing, as he is singing what may be an ancient hymn, that this is a contemplation of what is going on in the second commandment, that Jesus is the image, Jesus is the icon. Jesus is the iconoclast that destroys all other images and all other icons, that he is so much more worthy, so much better. And you see him using this ancient cosmology again of everything everywhere, that Jesus is the one true image, that he created anything, so why would you use anything that's created to worship him or instead of him? Other idols will drive you, they will demand of you, but I, Jesus says, will die for you. He becomes the one icon that will never leave you or forsake you, that won't twist you and leave you at the altar. He becomes the iconoclast, destroying all other conceptions of God because they're inferior. We hold up all of our idols to him and let him tear them down because what he says is when you see me, you see God. Do you want something physical? Do you want something that looks more human? Do you want a face of God? Look at me. When you see me, I am God. I am the ultimate fulfillment of all of the Ten Commandments. I am what you can look at when you're tempted to break the Second Commandment, when you're tempted to take something created and temporal and creaturely and worship it instead of God. Worship me. I came in the flesh. And the result of this is that he is making peace through his blood. And where does it lead? It leads not to confinement, but to freedom. Not to where we see the law as an arbitrary fence, but we see it as a way to wholeness, as a way to being truly human. One commentator says, Choosing not to imprison God in a fixed image brings freedom. Idols and images imprison their makers. When we eliminate God's freedom, we eliminate our own. 
We tie ourselves to a fixed, predictable, tame substitute for God instead of linking arms with the untamed energy of the living God. If you're here this morning and you're still trying to figure out this Christianity thing, you're not yet ready to step in and say, this is me. I invite you, ask yourself, what drives you? Religious or not, what are your functional gods? And have they carried the weight of the hope that you've placed in them? Do they fulfill or do they leave you sad and less full? Do they delight in you? Or do they incessantly drive you and dictate to you how life will be? If the answer is no, then keep trying, because sooner or later, they will. They will dictate to you, they will drive you until you break, and they won't provide the very thing that you're asking them to provide for you. Maybe you're not willing to serve yet the macro-absolute of the Ten Commandments and of the exclusive relationship with God, but do you live by a hundred tiny absolutes that you enforce on yourself and enforce on others? Is that more palatable? Is that more freeing for you to live that that way? Investigate Jesus. Continue to sit where you are and investigate, ask questions. Maybe what Jesus is doing by bringing the law and fulfilling the law is not trying to be a yoke over you, but trying to be your way of freedom. And for the Christian here this morning, really the challenge is not much different. What are we holding up in front of us? What, are, what promises are we believing that are leading us away from God rather than towards him? Get to know Jesus. Imagine God through him. And pray that your imagination, your experience of him would be so great and so joyous and fulfilling that it would crowd out all of the other things that are clamoring for your worship and clamoring for your attention. He says, my burden is easy and my yoke is light. Is that your experience? Is that your experience of God? Is his burden light and it is his yoke easy? He will free you from chasing after the wind, chasing after all of those things that will leave you less happy and less full. Let him do that this morning. Let's pray. Father, we stand before you as creatures, and you are the creator. Lord, we want to bow our will. We want to submit our hearts and our lives to you, but it is so difficult. It is so hard to see how your promises can translate into our 21st century world and ultimately lead us to what is right and what is full and what is good and what is most human. Would you help us to see that? Would you help us to believe that as a community, as individuals, as families this morning, that we would align ourselves with you because you, by your own initiative, out of free grace, have aligned yourself with us. And we pray in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen.